As the choir comes down, will you grab your copy of Scripture? Let's open up to Galatians. We'll begin in chapter 5. You can find that on page 1341. The Pew Bible in front of you, if you just grab that hardback Bible, open to 1341, you'll find Galatians 5. We are wrapping up our study of Galatians. We need to finish chapter 5 today and move into chapter 6. We'll get to chapter 6 at the end. I just need to clarify a few things. Uh, we have, As we've studied through this book of Galatians, we took uh, the previous nine weeks and we went through each of these characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit. And it's been a very uh, good and edifying time. I'm very grateful and thankful for the way that God has used that study to mold and shape us and to prepare us for the things that he now has to say as we conclude this amazing gift in the book of Galatians. So we're going to talk this morning about walking in the spirit. I want us to make sure before we leave this subject, I want us to make sure that we know how to harness together everything that we've talked about over the last several months and pull all this together and get practical about what this will look like in our lives and uh, sort of reacquaint ourselves with the big picture of the book of Galatians. Let's begin reading this morning, Galatians 5. Let's begin in 19, and we'll read through 26. Galatians 5, 19. The Apostle Paul says to the churches at Galatia, Now the works of the flesh are evident. They are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I've told you beforehand, just as I also told you in times past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law, And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this gift in Your Word. Thank You for these words that were breathed by You, given to us, meant for us, Lord. Thank You for what You have to say here. Thank you for how these words will bring uh, change, transformation, sanctification in the lives represented in this room this morning. God, I pray that you will set free captives, that you will encourage those who are walking in defeat and discouragement. And that, Lord God, you will Enable all of us to to walk away from this time of study and to know that you've spoken into our lives, that you have purpose in these words for us. And so has already been prayed this morning. We pray now that you give us ears to hear, hearts to receive, that we might be changed forever by this word. We give you glory, praise and honor in Jesus name. Amen. So really, before we go forward into Galatians 6, we just have to back up a moment and make sure that we are uh, fully on board with with where Paul is, what he's saying, what are the implications for this uh, text in our lives. Uh, remember now, 
Uh, Let me clarify some terminology for you so that we'll be able to make sense of all this today. The flesh is the you that you were born with. When the Bible talks about the flesh in Galatians, Paul's talking about the you that you were born with. This is you that's been tainted by sin. This is the falling you that's been contaminated by being born in sin. That's the flesh. The spirit is the you that you received when you were born again. The spirit is what you receive from God at the moment of salvation. God puts his spirit in you. And so you are still in the flesh. You still have the flesh. You still are. You still have the part of you that you were born with. But now you have this new part of you that you've received when you were born again. That's why Jesus in his conversation in John chapter three with Nicodemus, he says in verse six, that that which is of the flesh is of the flesh and that which is born of the spirit is of the spirit. That born of the flesh is flesh, born of the Spirit is spirit. Now, when you become a Christian, what happens is the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of Christ, these nine characteristics that we've looked at uh, from, you know, this passage in, in, in verses 22 and 23, they take up residence in you. The Spirit of God, God the Holy Spirit, takes up residence in us. And what happens is... There is, it's sort of the inauguration of this uncivil war that is basically the rest of our lives in this life until we are face to face with Jesus, at which time we will no longer war against the flesh. So here's how Paul said that earlier back in verses 16 and 17. He says, walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts or desires against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another. So there's this uncivil war inside of every believer between the spirit and the flesh. And it's ongoing all the time. And there are seasons in our life where this battle is more intense than other times. And just think about normal battle situations, that the battle between two uh, opposing forces does not rage on at the same intensity for, you know, long periods of time. There's times of intense battle and then they have to retreat and back up and regroup and come at each other again and depending on what's going on in your life. And so there'll be different sort of ebbs and flows, but this battle will always be present inside of every believer. And so, you know, I, I want you to try to be able to understand what this practically is like in our lives. In other words, picture picture the spirit and the flesh as two magnets that are opposed to one another. They They cannot cling to each other. No matter what you do, you can't push them together. But these two magnets exist, one on either side, and then you as this piece of metal in the middle. And so you can go either way. The magnets can never come together. They repel each other. But the metal in the middle, which is you, can go either direction. That's sort of the way to to picture in the simplicity of my mind what is going on. The flesh only desires sin, while the spirit only desires righteousness. So at no point under any circumstances do they ever agree with each other. Do they ever work together to accomplish anything. They are utterly and completely contrary and opposed to each other all the time. So look carefully now at verse 16. 
Paul says, walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Now, notice what the Bible doesn't say. The Bible doesn't say, I'm just trying to clear up, sweep up some of this, the, the, the dust that's been left from these past weeks of study. Because I've been listening to your questions and answering some of your questions. And I want to make sure that we've got this straight. It doesn't say walk in the flesh and you will not have the desires of the flesh. See, some of you have been confused about this. The Bible says you walk in the spirit and you won't fulfill. You won't obey. You won't accomplish the desires of the flesh. But the desires of the flesh are there. So long as you are living and breathing, they're going to be there. And so some of you have, have been very confused about, you know, there, there's still this, this desire, especially some of you that are, are just newly walking with Christ. And I've answered so many questions and emails over the past several weeks about this issue, about why do I keep struggling? Why do I have these temptations? Well, you... The Bible doesn't say that you won't have them. He says that when you walk in the Spirit, you won't obey them. You won't satisfy them. You won't fulfill them. It's also important to notice the order in which Paul uses here when he speaks. He says, walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh or the desires of the flesh. That that's the order in which this comes in. In other words, some of the confusion that some of you have is about how this works out practically. In other words, some people will say, stop carrying out the desires of the flesh and you will then walk in the Spirit. That's incorrect. You have flipped the order. You are trying to accomplish things in reverse and it will not work. In fact, here's what it will do. It will result in you spending your time trying to beat your flesh into submission, trying to order your flesh into obedience, and that will not work. No matter how hard you work at it, no matter how successful you may initially seem at sort of disciplining yourself to something, it will lead only to greater frustration. And those of you in this room, maybe some of you this morning that are in the midst of this ongoing battle with a specific sin in your life, maybe it's a secret sin, maybe it's a sin that those closest to you know about and you've been battling this sin and you find yourself just completely flabbergasted at how no matter how hard you fight, it not only seems to continue to come back and get you, but you get worse and not better. Well, this is why. Because when you, try to, when you try to work through the flesh first in order to walk in the Spirit, it will not work. Remember a couple of years ago, I think it was, a movie came out that I never saw. But the title of the movie caught my attention. I remember when I saw the title of this movie, I thought about this text. The movie's called How to Train Your Dragon. Now, here's what that immediately... I have no idea what that movie's about. But here's, here's what I do know. You can't train a dragon. Now, if you think about your flesh as a dragon, there you go. You ain't training it. It's not going to, you know, it's not going to behave itself. You can't turn a dragon into a, a house pet. It won't work like that. Only in fantasy land does that work. You know, people, it never ceases to amaze me, the, the, the stupidity of the human race. You, you, you watch uh, shows on television about 
people who take these wild animals and they grow them up in their house and in their family and they become part of their family. And they and then by the time you're watching the program, it's because, you know, Benji, the pet Bengal tiger, you know, tried to gnaw the head off of one of their children. And even when the even when the the, the program is interviewing the people, they're oblivious. They're like. We don't understand. I mean, they're showing pictures of, you know, their Benji rolling around in the yard with their kids and eating out of their hand and sitting at the dinner table with them. It's a tiger. You don't have a tiger in your house and, and expect not to get bitten. It just doesn't work like that. I mean, I watched a, a documentary on one of my bazillion hours on an airplane in the last several months. And uh, it was about the 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 orca whales at SeaWorld. And primarily the documentary is about Tilly, this giant uh killer whale that uh killed one of its trainers. Duh! Who's swimming with something called a killer whale? I'm not swimming with a killer whale. Now if it's a giant cuddly whale, I'll swim with that. I mean, but the, the thing is, is that it, what bewilders me is the astonishment of people that the whale did that. Why did the whale do that? Maybe the the whale, maybe it's not being cared for properly. Maybe it's no, it's a killer whale. That's all I need to know. See, Paul's not saying here, fix the flesh. Any more than, than I'm swimming with a killer whale, you're going to have the same luck trying to fix your flesh. That's not going to work. You don't fix it so you can walk in the Spirit. He says you walk in the Spirit and you will then thwart. You will crush the enemy of the flesh. You won't fulfill the desires of the flesh. The way to defeat the flesh is by walking in the Spirit. Any other attempt at defeating the flesh is going to leave you utterly and completely defeated, frustrated, and just further sinking into the depths of your struggle or sin. This is in no way, shape, or form. Self-help, self-improvement, self-reliance, self-anything. All of our human efforts to make ourselves acceptable to a holy God will fail miserably. This is the gospel. This is the glory of the message of Galatians that we in and of ourselves cannot produce righteousness. We can't work our way to heaven. We can't make ourselves acceptable to God. So when someone approaches Christianity from the standpoint of, well, you know, I'm, I'm learning about God. I'm coming to church. Uh, I'm starting to really think about all these things. But I'm, I'm going to get some things together in my life first. And then once I've cleaned up my act, then I'm going to come to Christ. That is a person who utterly and completely misunderstands the gospel and has no concept of what salvation is. If you could do that, you wouldn't need a Savior. You have to picture yourself in the middle of the ocean, utterly and completely void of the skill of swimming. What you need is a savior. You don't need, you don't need to start teaching yourself in that moment how to swim. That's not going to get you out of the peril that your sin has gotten you into. You see, now, shift gears. Before you throw your hands up, 
Maybe if you're in that camp, maybe if you are, are, are not yet a, a believer, you're not, you, you, you don't possess the Holy Spirit yet, but you're, you know, you're, you're beginning to, your eyes are beginning to open up. God's beginning to move in your life. Well, don't get frustrated because understand something. Those of us in this room that are believers in Jesus Christ that have been born again and received the power of the Holy Spirit within us. Listen, we can't clean up our act either. So it's not just you, it's us too. We still struggle every single day. This is why uh, the Bible says in Romans chapter 7, verse 18, the Apostle Paul says, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. You see, that's the Apostle Paul. Now, if that's true about him, do I need to say anything else? No. It's a battle. It's a war. It's a continual struggle day in, day out. So this is why he says, walk in the Spirit. You see, when Paul says, walk in the Spirit, he's speaking specifically to certain people. He's not telling everyone universally. God's not saying, hello, humanity, you need to walk in the Spirit and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. No. He's speaking specifically to saved people. He's only talking to people who have the capacity to walk in the Spirit. You see, you can't walk in something you don't possess. You aren't born with the Spirit of God. You're born only with the flesh. So apart from salvation, the only thing you can walk in is the flesh. That's all you can do. And I mean, all of us in here who have come to Christ in salvation, we know exactly where that will lead you and exactly what that will get you. We all vividly remember what walking in the flesh accomplished in our life. Nothing but pain and destruction. So Paul goes on in Romans to say, so if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. He is not his. You see, the, the only saved people possess the spirit. The, the quintessential mark of salvation. Like if you just said... Just break it down for me in the simplest possible form. What is the difference between a saved person and an unsaved person? It's not all of these things that we start lumping on top. It's not all of these deeds and actions that you do. The difference between a saved and unsaved person is not that one goes to church and one doesn't. A lot of times they both go to church. Oh, you'll get that tomorrow. It's not that, it's not that one reads his Bible more than the other one. It's not that one prays more than the other one. That's not it. The quintessential difference between a saved person and an unsaved person is a saved person possesses the Spirit of God. Plain and simple. A lost person only has the flesh. That's the difference. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians, for example, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? You see that? Or lest indeed you be disqualified. For what is the test? Is Jesus in you? That's the test. Remember back in Galatians 3, the very beginning of chapter 3, Paul said, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. So he, he, he starts chapter 3 by saying, you fools. Who is, who is 
cast a spell on you? Who has deceived you? Who's confused you to where you've forgotten the gospel that was so clearly presented to you? Now he goes on to say this. This only do I want to learn from you. In other words, he says, I only have one question for you, foolish Galatians. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? You see, his question is very simple. How did you become Christians? How did you come into possession of the Holy Spirit? How did that, how was that accomplished? And then he continues, are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, you are now being made perfect by the flesh. In other words, so here's the warning for all of us in this room, because the the problem with this conversation is that there may be a tendency in some of you to just lean back in, in your pew there and get yourself all comfy and say, you know, hey, I know I'm saved. I know I'm a Christian. So I'm good. I have the Holy Spirit. And just start checking out. And that's where you make a fatal mistake. That's where the war in you, the flesh, just won a tremendous victory. That's what has gotten you in the mess you're in right now. Listen. Believers, he's talking to you. And he says, are you so foolish having begun in the spirit? That, that remember when you got saved? Remember what happened? Remember what God did in you? Yeah, I remember, I remember. Well, what's happened since then? Well, what is going on in your life now? Why are you walking in defeat? Where is the spiritual victory gone? What is it? Why is that? Why is it that, that I spend most of my time as your shepherd answering questions about the process of sanctification? Because, because so many people have no concept of what that is. They look at salvation as sort of the end of something and not the beginning of something. You see, the, the moment you're saved, that you embark on this unbelievably phenomenal journey of sanctification in Christ. But if you just unplug, if you just check out at that moment, I mean, listen, I hear this, the phrases that just swirl around the Christian culture today, like carnal Christians. And I just think, how, how ridiculous is it that a phrase like that would even gain traction in a Christian community? What does that tell you? I mean, yeah, I'm absolutely convinced that most of the time someone uses the phrase carnal Christian. Basically, that's what you're saying is they're lost. But there are those... The reason why it's so plausible is because there's so many people who may, in fact, be saved, but whose lives bear no fruit, who just muddle around in their defeat. And, 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 it's, and they're, not, they're not growing, they're not changing, they're not, they're just sort of coasting. And yet, where's the text on coasting? I mean, I've read every word. It's not in there. But look around. What do you see? You see a 
a church culture today that is asleep at the wheel. Asleep. And just wants no part of what Paul is talking about here. And the thing that is so baffling is the greatness and the glory of what is being foregone. What you are missing out on if you are merely sitting there spiritually in neutral. But before we can really answer the question practically, what is walking in the Spirit? First thing we need to do is talk for just a moment about what it's not. What is, what is walking in the Spirit not? Let's make sure that we're clear about that. Uh, go back to verse 17. Look at 517 where he says the lust of the spirit uh, wars against the lust of the flesh are contrary to one another. Look at the end of that verse. So that you do not do the things that you wish. Now, that's important. You want to underline that in your Bible, wish. Well, what is that? Why? Because desire is not the solution. In other words, the reason you are not able to conquer the sin in your life is not because you lack desire and want to. You see, the Bible says, no, no, you wish to do these things, but you can't do them. A lot of times what we think is if you just want it bad enough. I mean, I, oh, our our culture, again, is just so filled with this prevailing, ridiculous notion that, that people who sincerely want to change will change. How is that different from works? How is that different from just self-sufficiency? That, that, I mean, how that sounds like Oprah Winfrey to me. It sounds like the power of positive thinking. But that's sort of this, this notion that, I mean, there are books about it and uh, it just drives me crazy. Hey, I haven't slept. Let me explain to you how this works, okay? It's not desire. It's not wanting that's going to be the solution. Let's use a a life application here and try to... Let me explain this to you. There's a man. And he's in church and... He's married and he's committed to his family and he loves his children and and he doesn't he doesn't want to he doesn't wake up every morning and say today would be a great day to throw my life away. He doesn't want to get a divorce. He doesn't want his kids to resent him. He doesn't want his desire. His desire is to do the right thing. But pornography has a grip around his neck like a noose. And he hid it for so long and he snuck around and nobody knew about it. And he, but it slowly just strangled the life out. And he would, he would, every time he looked at pornography, he felt horrible inside and he would repent and sincerely regret his actions. He was filled with remorse. He felt dirty and disgusting and like he was betraying his family and his God. And it just further pushed him back into the recesses of his own cave. Okay? And so what does he do? He he then says, 
I've got to, I've got to stop. I've got to stop. And so, because I don't want my wife to leave me. I don't want to be ashamed in front of the people that I know. So what am I going to do? I'm going to stop doing this. So he takes some precautionary measure in his life. He, he puts a filter on his computer or he, you know, confesses it to his pastor or to his wife or whatever the case may be. And so he puts this precautionary measure into place. And then that sort of rocks along for a little while. And he winds up right back in the pit that he crawled up out of. And this time he's worse because now he feels worse than he did before because he's confessed it or he's tried to do something and he's failed yet again. And every time you fail, you feel worse than the previous failure because now the voice in your head is saying you're even bigger failure than you were the last time I told you you were a failure. And so this spiral of downward down. And I mean, you can put this in the gossiping mouths. You can put this in the, 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 the misbehaviors. You can put this in, I mean, you can put this in, in your work ethic. You can take this model and apply it to any area of your life. But now what is the problem with what I've just said? Why can't he, it's not desire. It's not want to. Listen, if you are trapped in this ongoing sin cycle in your life, drop the desire notion. It's a myth. Here's the problem. The problem is, is that you're trying to mingle together two things that utterly and completely oppose themselves and will never work in cooperation. Let me explain that to you. When I talk to a person in this situation, let's suppose this particular man comes into my office. Let's just admit that the reason I'm so good at this conversation is because of the heartbreaking number of times I've had to have this conversation. What is it? How is this conversation going to go? It's going to go like this. The first thing I'm going to ascertain is, are you saved? My number one priority in that conversation is, is this person in possession of the Holy Spirit? Because now I'm not ever going to fully know that for sure. But if I don't sense that you have the capacity, then what's the point of even talking about it? Well, I mean, that would be like you coming to me and saying, Pastor, I need your advice. Okay, what's the problem? Well, I'm going to fight Mike Tyson and I just need you to help me. No, you're pretty much going to get your head knocked off. That's how that's going to go down. I can't help you. You don't have the capacity to fight Mike Tyson. So are you saved? Do you have the Spirit of God within you? Once that conversation is had, here's the next conversation. Is there any area in your life that is off limits to declaring war against this sin? Listen to what I just said. Is there any area of your life that is resistant, that you are resistant to utilize in the battle against your sin? And if the answer is yes, no matter how small or minute the yes is, you will utterly and completely fail. Do you know why? Because here's how this plays out. So after I've had the conversation with this hypothetical person, they walk out of my office. They've got accountability around them. They got filters on everything. But 
they still sit in the living room with their spouse and watch HBO. They still go to the movies that have explicit scenes in them with their spouse right next to them. I see it all the time. And the notion that somehow you are going to overcome an addiction to pornography by watching softer pornography is ridiculous. You're trying to utilize the spirit against the flesh, but at the same time, you're feeding the flesh that you're trying to defeat. I don't think you understand. I'm trying to set you free here. I'm I'm giving you, I'm giving you a, this is the freedom formula. You plug this into whatever circumstance or scenario you're dealing with. Your life is riddled with fear. Plug this in. In other words, it's like, it's like you being in your house alone. And you know that there is a person standing at the edge of your front lawn in the road in front of your house. And that person, you know, desires to kill you. You know that they desire to kill you. And you know that they're armed, dangerous, and have the capacity to do so. And so I say to you, what are you going to do in this situation? And that person that's standing in front of your house at the edge of your road represents your sin that you are unable to have victory in. And it would be like you saying, well, here's what I did, Pastor. I understood that they wanted to kill me and I understood they had the capacity and the ability to kill me. Okay, so what was your next move? Was your next move to call 911, to flip on all the lights, to start running around screaming like a maniac, trying to get everybody in town to wake up and to come to your defense? And uh, did you use everything in your capacity to declare war against the person who's outside who wants to kill you? No, pastor, I didn't do that. What did you do? I invited them on the porch. Why did you invite them on the porch? Because it was raining. I hear that scenario repeated over and over and over. Men and women who genuinely don't want their families to be wrecked, who genuinely desire freedom from this ongoing sin, from your filthy mouth or your lustful thoughts or your gossip or your ethics at work or whatever the case may be. But what you're doing is you're trying to fight against this big thing, but you're feeding it in all these other areas because you're unwilling to declare absolute full-scale war against the sin. Listen, the Spirit understands something. The spirit never loses. You understand that? The flesh has never and will never win a battle when engaged head on with the spirit. Am I lying? So then what's the problem? Why are we so defeated? Because we don't know what walking in the flesh and in the spirit is. We don't know what it. What do you mean? I've been talking about this for months. Some of you in this room are utterly clueless. You could not verbalize in a sentence what is walking in the Spirit. 
What does that look like? We've dissected all nine elements. I don't know. Well, you're going to know today. You see, that's why when you ignore the fact that these two are contrary to each other, they can't collaborate, cooperate. You can't feed the flesh over here and then try to slay the flesh over here. It just doesn't work like that. that that's what the Bible calls a double-minded man. You ever heard that phrase like in the book of James? A double-minded man. You know what a double-minded man is? The Bible says a double-minded man is like a person, like a wave in the ocean being tossed to and fro. You know why? Because they're bouncing back and forth between the will of God and the will of man. You're, you're not committed. You see, you, you want God's will for your life. But you're not willing to give up everything to get there. You see, like, these areas of your life over here are, are sort of quarantined. They're off limits. They're not. And that, that is a recipe for defeat. You can't, what do you think you're going to do? Fool God? You think you're going to trick Him? You think He doesn't know the thoughts and intentions of your heart? I mean, how, how ridiculous is it of us that everything we know about God, that we would even have the, we would even entertain the idea The thought that somehow we're going to skate by on something? You don't think he heard what came out of your mouth? You don't think he knows the thought that you thought? You don't think he knows the secret things that are going on inside of you? The ways that you're disobedient to him? But because nobody else knows, you just keep riding that sort of that canoe down the river of destruction. Look back up at verse 19 where we started. I want you to notice a couple more things. Notice in verse 19 how Paul says it's the works of the flesh that are evident. You might want to circle that. Put a little, a little word up top, an arrow that says plural. The works of the flesh are evident. And then go down to verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit. Not fruits, but fruit. Now, I've said this a hundred times, but it, we've got to get this straight. Look at the works of the flesh. Look at the list. They're all over the map. You're like a schizophrenic. It's like a Jerry Springer show in that list. Right? Yeah. So what would be, I mean, this isn't rocket science. What would be the characteristic of every Jerry Springer show? Chaos. Every person that's on there, their lives are filled with chaos. You know why? Because you see the plurality of all these things, how they're all duplicitous and all. There's no boundaries. They just run rampant all in every different direction of ridiculous behavior. And so so the way that you can tell that a person's walking in the flesh is because walking in the flesh is going to yield chaos in your life. Your life is going to be spiritual chaos. Some of you... You know that God's talking to you right now when I said that. He just rang your bell. You know you are a spiritual train wreck. Walking in the flesh produces chaos. But look at the singularity. Look at the unit. What does walking in the spirit produce? Harmony. That's why it's singular. They're holistic. 
In other words, you don't, you don't grow in love and not peace. You don't get one part and not the other part. So the good news is, is like I've already said, that you get everything you need for life and godliness. In other words, you've been armed and equipped to defeat the flesh in every single battle of your life. There's no area of your life that you cannot find victory. Some of you have walked in defeat for so long, you can't even receive what I just said. That just went right. I mean, you're just like, no, you, there's not, there's no victory that's unreachable for anyone who's in Christ. If you're sitting in church, listening to me preach, and you've said to yourself before, said to yourself today, the phrase has crossed through your mind, I wish that were true for me. You have got a problem. You've got a problem. Because that ain't true. It's the fruit, singular, the harmony, the holistic nature of the fruit. In other words, this is, again, why Paul uses the analogy of a fruit. That's why he's giving us this. Suppose you look at an apple tree and you walk up to an apple tree and you look on the apple tree and on the apple tree is growing this big, beautiful, giant stem. You don't look at that stem and go, look, honey, look at the beautiful apple. It's not an apple. It's a stem. Or if you go to the other side of the tree and over here, there's just some giant apple seeds growing. You don't go, look at the apple. It's not an apple. It's a seed. In order for it to be an apple, it's got to be a seed. It's got to be skin. It's got to be a stem. It's got to be the apple part in the middle. It's got to be all that together to be an apple. And it grew that way. Some of it grew faster than others, but it all grew together. It can't be an apple unless all those things are present. You grow holistically. Why? Why do I keep harping on this? Why is it so important for you to understand that the fruit is singular and that it's all encompassing and it's either all evident or it's none of it is evident? Why? Because it's the temptation to counterfeit fruit is is one of our greatest natural born attributes. Our flesh is a counterfeiting machine. And one of the reasons that it's that is it's impossible to duplicate the fruit, but one of the reasons that it's so hard even to counterfeit it, that in the grace of God, He gives us this harmonious nature where they're all present at some degree or another so that you can't just pick and choose. Case in point. Maybe there's someone that you know who happens to be amazingly proficient at appearing to be self-controlled. You know, they weren't here the morning I preached on self-control, and so they understand self-control in a worldly, inappropriate, wrong way. But regardless of that, they have have great self-control. And so they're able to really discipline their lives. And the reason that they work so hard on having such a disciplined life is because they want everybody around them to look at them and say, my, what a marvelous Christian you are. You are so self-controlled. But at closer inspection, you notice that they're void of kindness. Then you know that that self-control is an imposter. 
some of you have asked me specifically, how do I know the real thing from the fake thing? Because. Stop focusing on the thing and start looking at the other eight. Where are they? Now, you don't grow unilaterally. They don't all grow equally at the same rate. I've already said this. But they're there. So if you possess God-enabled self-control, then your life possesses God-enabled kindness or gentleness or patience. You see? So for the person who says, you know, I, I just... I just don't have any patience. If I'm honest with myself and I think over the span of the last 10 years of my life, I mean, I've been in church for every single time the doors are open for the last 10 years and I am just as impatient today as I was 10 years ago. You are in trouble. Well, not really. You just need to come down this morning and get saved. Because that's not how it works. That doesn't mean you're going to be perfectly patient. No, none of us are. But you're more patient today than you were two years ago. Yes. It hurts more when you're impatient today than it did two years ago. Yes. Why? Because that's the spirit of God working in you. Watch how Paul clarifies this. Look at look down at verse 24. You see... You may be inclined, even after everything that I've said this morning. Some of you may be inclined to think, so this is Christianity. I'm relegated to this civil, this uncivil war that internally rages within me. Every single day of my life from now until I die. Boy, that is a joyful... I mean, thank you so much, Pastor, for encouraging me today. So my life is going to be relegated to this meager pitiful spiritual existence, this little minimal growth along the way. But, you know, you might be able to take one step forward in the, in the spirit, but then two steps back in the flesh. No, you know better than that. You know better than that. The good news is, is that I know better than that. And you know better than that. Even if you don't know, you know me. And I've been here since the day I got saved. So how did this happen? Maybe I was just born with some spiritual giftedness. Maybe God just, when He created me, He just, He just made me, uh, smarter than average. Why don't you quiz some of my teachers from school? Why don't you do a little, uh, survey of, you know, you remember that game show where they get people from your past? Yeah, that'd be great. That, that'd encourage you. And here's the thing. Because I've been here for so long, I know you. I know you. I remember you when you first got here. I remember how you used to be. And I know how you are now. And you see, I praise God for that. I thank God for that. I get on my knees and I weep. God, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. For the living, breathing representations of the power of sanctification and walking in the Spirit that I get to look into their faces every single week. Thank you, Lord.
Because lest I ever think, get discouraged, beat down and think, is anybody listening? He puts your faces in my mind. And I only dwell for just a second on who you were when I first met you and who you are now. And I'm ready to get back in the fight and go to war yet again. Notice what he says, verse 24. Those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. Now, what does that mean? Because it kind of sounds like, well, wait a minute, now it sounds like the battle's over. Well, let me just help you, okay? Paul here is asserting the sufficiency of the Spirit to always defeat the flesh in head-on, hand-to-hand combat. That's what he's doing. But you have to understand, let me explain to you everything that's going on here. Remember back in chapter 2, verse 20? This verse will come up, Galatians 2.20, where Paul makes this famous statement. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Right? Now notice, same word, but different. In Galatians 2.20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's passive. The verb is passive in Galatians 2.20. In other words, something has been done to the Christian, for the Christian, by someone else in that verse. Don't look at me, look at the verse. I have been crucified. This is very important. Paul says, I've been crucified. If you're saved this morning, you've been crucified with Christ. Something has been done for you by someone else. Now, what does he mean, I've been crucified with Christ? Well, We've been crucified with Christ and that He died on the cross and bore the brunt of our sins. He, he, he hung on a cross in our place. So we've been crucified with Him, which is the basis by which we've been declared righteous before God by faith. So the only way we can come in here this morning and say we are righteous in God's eyes is because He died in our place. See, if you're not saved, He didn't die in your place. He died in the saved people's place. So, now back to verse 24. So you understand that? Past tense, passive nature. Now look back at verse 24. The passive voice now gives way to active construction. You see, he's changed the tone here. He's saying something different. He's saying the crucifixion of the flesh in verse 24 is clearly described as something that happens, is it's done to us. No. It's done by us. You see, in 2.20, it was done to you. In verse 24, it's done by you. And so what he's talking about in verse 24 is this process of sanctification. And those who are Christ's, Those who, those who are Christ, those who possess the spirit have crucified the flesh. Now, who crucified the flesh in that verse? You did if you possess the spirit. 
Oh, okay. Now I'm beginning to see. Yes. This is why you will not grow in sanctification sitting on the couch eating Fritos. You don't grow by osmosis. You crucify the flesh. Yes, you participate in this process. This daily putting to death the flesh, which yields the victory of the spirit. How did Jesus say it? Remember, he said in the book of Luke, when we studied through Luke, Jesus makes the statement, if anyone desires to come after me, let him do what? Deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You see that? Crucify the flesh daily. Deny himself, take up his cross. Crucify the flesh. Crucify the flesh. Crucify the flesh every day. What if you don't do that today? Well, then guess what? You won't crucify the flesh. What are you going to do? You're going to walk in the, in the flesh. You're not going to walk in the spirit. So you take up his cross every day. Deny yourself. Who is yourself? I've already told you. That's the you you were born with. And when you deny the you you were born with, you are then turning to, yielding to, embracing the one you were reborn with. All right, so let's just get practical and then we'll wrap this up. Verse 25. Galatians 5.25. He says, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. So right off the bat, Ding, 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 ding. You can live in the Spirit and yet not walk in the Spirit. Aha. Uh-huh. Which would yet explain the mystery as to why are there so many defeated Christians. They live in the Spirit. They've been born again in the Spirit. But they don't walk in it. They just walk over it. They just trample along in it. And so they're just relegated to the mercy of the flesh. And then they look around and go, what is wrong with me? Why can't I? What's the problem? Why is everybody else? And they get bitter and and discouraged and dejected and all sorts of things start happening. And what's the problem? Well, you're you live in the spirit, but you don't walk in it. They're not. it's, it's, It's not automatic. God doesn't save you and then just Do everything for you. That's not how it works. He's done everything for you to save you, but then you walk in that salvation. I know, I know. You don't understand. I'm going to help you. It's like the person who owns the Ferrari, has the valid driver's license, and just sits in the parking lot revving the engine never putting the thing in first gear you have it you possess it the capacity the ability the freedom to utilize it is all there and you just sit there and you're just revving 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 and you're looking at god and you're saying god my car is defective why am i not going anywhere I mean, it looks good. It sounds good. Everything. Boy, when I got it, I was so excited. Look at this car I got. Look how beautiful it is. Look how great it is. But when I get in it, I don't go anywhere. It's because you're not putting it in gear. You're not walking. You're just living in. You just live in your car. I mean, what good would it be if you had the exact medicine to cure the disease that you're facing? And yet you don't take it. Huh? 
What if you had the exact medicine in your possession to resolve whatever disease it is that you're facing? That this will utterly and completely slay the flesh every time. The Spirit's undefeated. It's four gazillion, trillion, bazillion to zip. It's never lost. And He never will. But when you fail to fight, when you fail to walk, then you're fighting on your own. And I've already told you, you'll never win that battle. You'll never win that battle. There will be moments when some of you have enough sort of oomph. I mean, boy, the, the, real, the real legalists among us, man, they, they, they can grit their teeth and hunker down and they can look pretty shiny for a little while. But it will run its course. Because soon this impenetrable frown will develop on their face. I have never met a legalist, never, that had joy. Never. They fail to understand the harmony of the fruit of the Spirit. And they try to disguise their flesh as one representative of the Spirit. But you can't do it. Because it's all or nothing. It's like on all these travels to and fro. You know, you get to know airports pretty good. And then what you get to know about airports is that the dumbest people in the world design them. I mean, I love them in Christ, but the person who lays out the signs... I love them in Christ. I want to hug them tightly in Christ. My gate's always 50. I get to the very end and it's 49 every time. No lie. I'm in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Me and Steve walk up to some people that work at the airport. We said, where? There's 49. Where's gate 50? They looked me dead in the eye and said, we have a gate 50? What hope do I have if you work here and don't know you have a gate 50? Anyway. Walking in the Spirit. Let me just make this as practical for you as I possibly can and then we'll be done. I'm going to give you three simple things. Okay? You might want to write these down. They'll be helpful to you. Number one, walking in the Spirit. Discover God's viewpoint on a subject. Okay, you've got a problem. And you don't know how to fix it. You want, there's some area of your life you need to walk in the Spirit. You need the power of the Spirit. And okay, whatever it is. Whatever it is. I want you to resolve yourself to discover what God has to say about that issue. Okay? I want you to become a theologian on that issue. Whether it's purity, whether it's discipline, whether it's you, whatever it is. Whatever your deficiency is. Whatever area of your life that the, the flesh is being victorious in. I want you to discover God's viewpoint on that issue. Number one. Once you've done that, number two, decide to respond like Christ to that viewpoint. Determine in your heart, purpose in your heart that you are going to, and it's very specific, respond like Christ. In other words, don't just figure out God's viewpoint on something and then go, okay, here's what I'm going to do because now you failed and you're co-mingling two things that can never work together. You're going to fail. 
What would Jesus do in this situation, armed with the information that I possess from the Scripture or from godly counsel with regards to this situation? What's his viewpoint? And then resolve to respond like Christ to that viewpoint. And then number three, call on the Holy Spirit to empower the decision that you've made based on the discovery of this viewpoint. Do those three things. Do them without any hidden agendas. Do them without any... Uh, crevices that are off limits. You take those three simple steps and declare war on any deficiency in your life and watch, just watch what happens. That's what walking in the Spirit is. Essentially, if I asked you this question, if I said, what is the most practical way that you can grow in your relationship with Christ? If I walked up to you at your place of employment tomorrow and I said, I have one question for you. What is the most practical way that a person can grow in their relationship with Christ? What would your answer be? What sort of things would you begin to espouse? Oh, you should read your Bible every day. Oh, some of you would just revert into utter and complete legalist. I'm asking for one practical thing. What is the one practical way that you can grow in your relationship with Christ. Obey. That's it. Obey. That's what you need to know. Obedience is the doorway to growth in Christ. You see, when you first obeyed Christ, let me, let me explain to you. For those of you in the room who marvel at the other people in the room who have who who are able to walk in the Holy Spirit. For the people that are in this room that you think that's somebody that I want to be with, like. I'd like to have a relationship with God like they have. Let me explain to you how that happened. See, the first time that they obeyed Christ, they're just like you. They didn't obey Christ because they wanted to. They didn't obey Christ because he was so glorious and good and wonderful and no. They didn't learn that until later. They first obeyed Christ because they knew that their lives were a train wreck and that, that their way was a disaster. And so they trusted in God, maybe even a little hesitantly, but they stepped out on a plank for God and they said, I'm, I'm going to obey God in this area of my life. And then what happened? I mean, when you step out on the plank, you don't have one foot back. You're not cheating. You're not trying to defeat porn and watching HBO. No, no, you're all the way out on the plank. And then what happens? Boom, the Spirit of God works. And then guess what happens? The next time something comes up, they're like, oh, I'm obeying God. And every time you obey God, the Spirit wins. And every time the Spirit wins, you get victory. And every time you get victory, you begin to see how glorious and wonderful God is. And the more glorious and wonderful God is, the more likely you are to obey Him in more areas of your life. And one thing leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. And the next thing you know, you are a mature believer. It's, you don't have to, you don't have to get a PhD. Just obey God. Just obey God. There are families that are being ripped apart because people won't obey God. There are children that are destroying their lives because they won't obey God. You don't need a theological dissertation. 
Obey God. What does God say about it? What would Jesus do in that situation? Ask God to empower you and go full scale against it and watch what happens. Test Him. It's obedience. But you can't want it God's way and your way. You can't mingle. It won't work. And you go to the same person that you admire in the Lord and you say to them, tell me about the times you tried to obey and you failed. And they'll say, oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I learned that lesson many times. I would set out to obey God, but I really wasn't sincere about it. I really was holding back certain areas of my life. I wasn't sold out to, to walking in the Spirit. I just, I just didn't want to get a divorce. I just didn't want to lose my reputation. I just didn't want to. I, just, I didn't want the consequence of this sin, but I wasn't, I'm, not, I'm not willing to declare full-scale war against it. Well, and so I lost. But it was those defeats that taught me. That taught me. And so tomorrow morning, why don't you do this? Wake up tomorrow morning, open your Bible, start reading it. And read it whether it's 2 minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. You read it until God tells you something. When whatever God tells you, do it. Just do it. Do whatever He tells you to do. Do it. And watch what happens in that area of your life. So what, is, what does Paul do? Look at, look at how beautiful this is and we're done. Verse 26. Now in light of all this, okay? Hurry up. We've got to finish. We're, we're, we're late. There's nothing new. But Rod gave you extra time last week, so I'm cashing it in and now. Okay. <laughs> we're, we're talking about fruit. You've got to get this. Fruit. Fruit of the Spirit. What is true about fruit? Fruit is visible. You've never seen a piece of invisible fruit. Fruit's recognizable. You've never looked, walked into Walmart. I mean, well, I have. And said, what in the world is a rutabaga? It's a fruit, by the way. I just know things that people shouldn't know, but I know that. Fruit's recognizable. Anybody that knows about fruit, you can show them a piece of fruit and they go, yeah, I know what that is. It's visible. It's not invisible. Now, what, is a, what, is a, what does fruit exist for? Fruit doesn't eat itself. No. So what does fruit grow for? There's this tree and here's all this fruit coming off. Have you ever just looked at that and said, now why is that there? Well, no, because we're so selfish in our sin nature that we go, oh, it's there for me. We never considered the fact of all the work the fruit had to do to get there. Like, did you ever take the apple off the tree and thank the tree for the apple? Said, thank you very much. I appreciate all that. Or say, thank you, apple, before you chomp your big teeth into it. Fruit exists for others. The tree doesn't eat the fruit. The fruit doesn't eat the fruit. Who, who is blessed by the fruit? Who's nourished by the fruit? Other people. So what you need to know about the fruit of the Spirit is, is that the fruit of the Spirit exists 
utterly and completely for the benefit of others. So when you are examining fruit in your life, and you start realizing, and you start thinking about, well, I'm pretty strong in this area of my life, stop right there and say, why? Why? Here's the question I want to know, husbands. Is your wife benefiting from the fruit in your life? Wives, is your husband benefiting from the fruit in your life? Because if you are sort of internally declaring victory in some fruitful area of your life, and those who God has entrusted to you are not benefiting from that fruit, you are that is not spiritual fruit. It's for the benefit of others. So the fruit in every man and every woman's life is for the benefit of their children. That the fruit in my life is primarily for my wife to eat of and for my children to dine on. And if they don't see the fruit in my life and if they don't benefit from the fruit in my life, then it's not spiritual fruit. It's for others. Which is why you don't produce fruit for you. You produce fruit for others. You produce fruit for the glory of God. Our lives are to be devoted to being fruitful for the glory of God. So Paul, because he knows we're not going to know this, he knows we're not going to just jump to this conclusion. So look at how he ends. He says in verse 26, so let us not be conceited. In other words, after everything he said, does this sound sound like what you would expect him to say? He says, hey, Now that we've got this fruit thing settled, what do you need to do? Well, don't be conceited. Don't think it's for you. Don't provoke one another. Don't envy one another. Look at verse 6. Look at chapter 6, I mean, verse 1. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. And you start reading in chapter 6, verse after verse after verse, what are they about? They're about the way we treat other people. So Paul pulls together the whole idea of fruit, and he says, now... Now that you understand what fruit is, now that you understand what the flesh is, now that you understand the power of the fruit, now that you understand practically how to walk in the power of the Spirit, then finally understand this. The fruit in your life is not for you. It's not for you. So if you think you're going to be fruitful because you want to teach a Sunday school class so that people think you're smart, that ain't fruit. That's not fruit. And the primary question that every single one of us needs to ask ourselves is who is benefiting from the fruit in my life? Who? Because I will look the man in the eyes who is drowning in a sea of pornography. And I'm not going to say to him, this is what you need to do so that your wife doesn't leave you. No, because she may very well walk right out the door. I say, why are we going to fight this battle? I've explained to you how we're going to fight it, but why are we going to fight it? We're going to fight it because God has called you as her husband to shepherd her and to protect her and to care for her. And that in that you are to produce fruit for her to eat of. And wives, listen. Let not a word come out of your mouth that denigrates or or lessens or lowers the character of your husband in any way, shape, or form. There is way too much husband bashing. 
He is to eat of the fruit of your life. So therefore, chapter 5 began with the declaration that we're to stand in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. He says, stand. Stand in this liberty that you've been, you've been, it's for freedom that you've been set free. Do not be engaged again or entangled again in the yoke of bondage. The offer on the table is real simple. Trade in your slavery for sonship. Cash in your, your frustration for freedom. Walk out of here resolved that I'm declaring war today. I'm declaring war today on behalf of those who love me and that I love. I will take everything in my life and I declare war against the sin that is trying to kill me. So why are we going to... Why do we do the things that we do? Why? Couldn't we just... I mean, come on, pastor. You're just raining on my parade. No, I'm not. I'm trying to help you. The flesh wants to kill you. He wants to destroy every single life in this room. The first question you've got to ask yourself is, do I possess the Spirit? That's question number one. And then question number two is, is there anything in my life that I'm unwilling to put in the battle? Did Jesus hold back? Did He hold back anything at the cross for you? Aren't you glad that He didn't look to that cross and He didn't think, mm, I don't know. I'll die for some of them, but I don't know about all of them. You know, I'll die for the ones who are, who, 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 who are able to be decent citizens, but I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not dying for the reprobates. I'll, aren't you glad He didn't hold back on the cross? So that we could be here this morning. It's for freedom that you've been set free. Let's stand, bow our heads, close our eyes.